The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. We begin today with an arresting image. Quote, in April 1894, a middle-aged gentleman bearing a load of dresses was rowed to the deepest part of the Venetian lagoon. A strange scene followed. He began to drown the dresses one by one. There were a good many, well-made, tasteful, and all dark, suggesting a lady of quiet habits and some reserve. The gondolier's pole would have been useful for pushing them under the still water. But the dresses refused to drown. One by one, they rose to the surface, their busts and sleeves swelling like black balloons. Purposefully, the gentlemen pushed them under, but silent, reproachful, they rose before his eyes. End quote. That comes from author Lyndall Gordon, writing in 1998, The middle-aged gentleman in that vignette is none other than Henry James, trying to drown the dresses of his fellow writer, Constance Fenimore Wilson, who had recently died in what may have been a suicide. And she was widely believed to be one of the greatest women writers in English at the time, the newspapers running her obituary compared her with all-time greats, George Eliot, Jane Austen, the Brontes, and Wilson. And yet, hers is the name we seldom hear, the one whose books might not stand on our shelves. It's a haunting image, this doomed woman, her few possessions, and a literary man there to try to submerge what insisted on re-emerging. Henry James was her advisor, her protector, her mentor, her friend, possibly more than that, and may have been something worse to her. The dresses that will not be drowned are haunting, representing the sadness of life, the uncertainty of death, and the awfulness of knowing that you did something wrong to someone else. Maybe it was a crime you committed, maybe it was an abusive friendship, or maybe... When it was time to be a friend and an unselfish comrade, you just didn't do enough. Maybe those dresses are a message from the grave. Maybe those dresses change your life. Maybe the dresses you tried to sink end up sinking you. Or maybe they let you rise above your former self, lifting you like balloons, inspiring you to be better. Did this happen? It's not clear that it did. The image is based on an often-told legend, which might be invented, but which has some truth beneath it. Venice was true. James was there. Wilson had died. James was going through her things. It could have been true. What would it have meant? We will dig into that and much else besides as we look at the life and works of Constance Fenimore Wilson today on The History of Literature. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Here we go. Here we go. Not going anywhere if we keep saying that, I guess. All this throat clearing and then silence. Have you ever done that? Clear your throat, open your mouth, and say nothing at all? You should try it sometime. Only try to keep that fear out of your eyes when you do it, because that will freak people out, in my experience anyway. Also not recommended is to do that if you are a podcaster. The silence tends to fall on deaf ears, although deaf ears, let's be honest, are the only ones who probably wouldn't mind the silence all that much. We're off to a great start, aren't we? Somewhere on the ladder of profundity, on the, on the ladder of profundity, we took the first step, the rung broke, and we fell through the window well and into the basement. 
Spiders are crawling all over us as we gaze up at the broken ladder of profundity. And notice how, well, we need to move on. Because we are on number five in our series of the Forgotten Women of Literature. Maybe this should be an August tradition. Was that August already? Did we do this in August last year? Can someone, one of you check that? Not you, dear listeners. I'm asking my producers. We had Anadwana, the high priestess of ancient Mesopotamia, who wrote the first or the oldest surviving poetry with her name to it. And uh, September is what I'm hearing. We did this last September. So maybe this is our 11-month tradition. We'll do this every 11 months. How about that? Kind of like cicadas. Come out with an odd number. We'll come out just like cicadas. Drain the sap out of your tree. Scream our heads off, mate. And disappear back into the ground. See you again next time, folks. Enjoy your dead tree. After an iduana, we had who else? Kai Yen, the heartbreaking Chinese poet known as Wenji. We had Sorwana Inés de la Cruz, that genius of Mexico. Oh, and Amelia Lanier. Can't forget her, who led us into some speculation about Shakespeare's Dark Lady, and who led us to our friend Robin Lithgow who made a wonderful appearance on the show after that. All those are in our archives, people, for free. Today's subject is another good one. Constance Fenimore Wilson, forgotten, but not forgotten, forgotten. Academics know who she is, and Jamesian scholars run across her. She and Henry James were friends and rivals. Let's not say rivals exactly, but in a sense, they were, I guess. She was more popular. He was more respected. And he, he, James was an odd guy. And his behavior in this respect, his conduct, and, well, let's use a nice Jamesian word here. His comportment was odd. Maybe disturbing, too, but certainly odd. He comported himself oddly. We'll roll that out there. And let you decide. But we will also give Ms. Wilson her due, including a special bonus episode of her most famous short story, Miss Grief, which describes her relationship with Henry James, except she wrote it before they met. So we need to say that it anticipates her relationship with Henry James. But sometimes when you know something is going to happen, it does end up happening, either because you knew yourself and the situation and the people involved so well that you could predict the future correctly, or because you're ready for a pattern, a chain of events to happen, and then it does, it's not something to ignore, to say, oh, the dates are wrong, so these two things can't be related. We can find illumination even if, let's say I'm in the basement down there with the spiders, which is literally where I am, down here with the spiders, but let's say I'm down here because I broke the rung on the ladder of profundity. So we can have a little closure on that story. I'm down here in the dark. I hold up a flashlight. Suddenly, a beam of light comes shooting out of the corner and enters my flashlight. Does it matter to me that I didn't flip the switch? I can see everything I wanted to see just fine. And what I see is terrifying, by the way, so I won't even tell you what it is. We'll save that for October, which is around the corner. Let's hear from a listener. Subject, movies. Hello, Jack. As a pretty new listener, I find myself enjoying your podcast more and more each day. I am yet to try more recent episodes, as I've been listening to ones from a year ago or more. So I'm not sure if you continue to read these emails or not. Either way, I hope this message finds you well. Hmm. I haven't been reading these emails. (laughs) Self-fulfilling prophecy, but here I am. This one spurred something in me, so here we go. It's a bit of a different email, this one, says our emailer. I hope since I want to ask about films. You seem to have a good taste from what I've been able to tell. Oh, I love this. I love this. This is so great. You seem to have good taste from what I've been able to tell. (laughs) As if maybe I don't have good taste. Hedging your bets. This is wonderful. I appreciate the compliment, and yet I am laughing at the caveat. Luca, our emailer. (laughs) Seem to have you seem to have good taste from what I've been able to tell. And I myself am just starting to get into the medium. 
but I struggle to find where to turn. Perhaps you could provide a little guidance. I fully understand if you're too busy or not interested, but I was just wondering what a few of your favorite movies are. I would really appreciate it if you could give some recommendations, as many or as few as you like, and I'm sorry if you have already had this question a billion times or if you've already covered it on your show. If so, could you please point me towards a relevant episode? Again, very sorry to take up your time, and I appreciate that you have a busy lifestyle. How true that is. If you can't, I understand. I am nonetheless endlessly grateful for the podcast. Yours, Luca. Wow. Thank you, Luca. That is a wonderful email. Okay. Okay. We have covered movies on the show, Luca. Maybe not favorite films of all time or the best movies to begin, but we've definitely gone to the movies. We did one on Literature Goes to the Movies. That was a two-parter with Mike Palindrome, episodes 103 and something else, maybe 104, 105. Then we've had our friend Brian Price on to discuss his work, Aristotle Goes to the Movies, episode 135. Brian came back for Holiday Movies, episode 172, which was sort of a personal disaster for me because that was the one where I presented my idea for a Christmas movie in which Jesus returns to Earth in order to rescue his birthday. And Brian pointed out to me that I would probably not be able to get that movie made. And why? I had to pretend I had been kidding the whole time. Oh, of course I knew that. Brian came back for a look at the Oscars by decade. That was fun. That was full of movies. Episode 179. And Mike came back for a ranking of Alfred Hitchcock's greatest films, which was episode 192. Here's a little secret one you might have missed. Vu Tran was here. And we talked about one of his favorite movies, Vertigo, and another one of his favorite movies. Well, I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but you can check that episode out as well. But favorite films. How about if I give you a handful now? Lawrence of Arabia might be my favorite film to see in a theater. The Third Man is up there, too. I never miss that one if it's playing. That's good in a theater as well. How about The End of the Affair? Another favorite. How about something by Ingmar Bergman? Maybe The Seventh Seal or Wild Strawberries. Can't go wrong with those. I like my movies dark and serious. But I enjoy comedies too, if they're for grown-ups. And there's The Godfather, parts one and two, if you haven't seen those for some reason. And how about Amadeus? I like Master and Commander with Russell Crowe. It's a Wonderful Life is imprinted in my DNA, as is The Sound of Music, as is Rear Window. I like Kieslowski movies and Orson Welles I don't miss and Scorsese. I like Hong Kong action movies and I like Kurosawa. Those are great movies. You should check out something in Italian neorealism and French New Wave. I think we're getting, this should be an episode. This sounds like a Mike Palindrome special. 50 movies to enjoy, a starter pack. Or... You can go to the Criterion Collection. That's going to be my empty nester move, by the way. Once the kids are out of the house, no more Hulu. No more Disney Channel. It's going to be all Criterion Channel all the time. Just me in the basement, weeping with nostalgia. Thank you, Luca, and happy viewing. Let's take a quick break and then come back with our subject for today, Constance Fenimore Wilson. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Constance Fenimore Wilson was born in 1840 into a family with some literary heritage. James Fenimore Cooper, author of The Last of the Mohicans and the Natty Bumpo novels, and who was taken down by Mark Twain in an all-time great eviscerating review, was Constance's great-uncle. She was born in New Hampshire. Now, if you're doing quick math and you know your 19th century history, not even detailed knowledge, but the biggest of events, you'll remember that 1840, that you'll see that she was 20 or so when the Civil War broke out. A very formidable time. And indeed, she later said that the Civil War was, quote, the heart and spirit of my life, end quote, and that everything in life had seemed tame ever since that war was over. She had been traveling throughout the North prior to the Civil War, although actually the it was the area of country that was then thought of as the West. Places like Cleveland, Ohio, and Wisconsin, and the island up in Michigan, Mackinac Island, which the British invaded in 1812, kicking off that war by taking the island by surprise, as the Americans did not know that war had been declared. They gave the island back in 1815. Wilson spent her childhood summers there, and when the literary marketplace started looking for stories with local color, she drew upon those experiences. Her first volume of short stories was called Castle Nowhere, Lake Country Sketches, which was all about the Great Lakes region, especially Mackinac Island. When she was in her late 20s, her father died, and she became her mother's companion for the next 10 years or so. They started summering in New York and wintering in Florida a tradition recommended by her mother's doctor, and giving Wilson a chance to see more of the South. This is how she spent the 1870s, the era of Reconstruction. She was still writing local color stories, but she switched her local color from the Great Lakes region to the Carolinas and Tennessee and Kentucky and Virginia and Georgia, and of course, Florida, which she came to love. Not at first, but it grew on her. She was popular now, known for her travel narratives and satires and her vivid use of voices. She published in magazines like Harper's and The Atlantic, the biggest, most respected magazines of her day. Her mother then passed away, which was devastating to her. And after that, she traveled to Europe, where she lived for the rest of her life, mostly in hotels, often for months at a time. In Europe, she met the great Henry James, who was more respected but less popular. Both of them had money, and you might think that James was comfortable with his position with respect to her, but popularity is a tough thing for an author, even one dedicated to high art, to concede. The megaseller John Grisham started out writing artistically ambitious novels, and then he found his calling as the writer of fast-paced legal thrillers, which his fans devour like potato chips. And an interviewer asked him once, do you ever wish you were respected like a John Updike or a Philip Roth writing books that win prizes? And he said, oh, sure, I'd love to win prizes. But I imagine that those prize winners wish their books sold as many copies as mine do. And he's right. They do want that, whether they admit it publicly or not. James had a way of celebrating his friend Constance for her success, and yet sort of giving her the back of his hand, too. Local color, voices in dialect, and all that popularity. There was much for him to sniff at, and he distorted who she was and what she was about. But let's talk about her for a minute, except this is like that old joke where the author says, but enough about me, what did you think of my latest book? We're saying enough about James. What did Wilson think of James? Only in this case, it seems kind of fair, because James dominated Wilson's life. She called him Harry. He called her Fenimore. They were affectionate, but not, it seems, lovers. She said, quote, a marriage not of body, but of minds, end quote. This is how she was referring to her relationship with James. 
A marriage not of body, but of minds. What some discover in youth, I found in middle age. And that she means around the age of 40, 42, until her death at 53. In the sky of that friendship, she said, I flew high. I was the Constance I most wanted to be. End quote. The Constance I most wanted to be. That's how important she valued. That's the importance with which she viewed her relationship with Henry James. I was the Constance I most wanted to be. She revered James. In other words, she valued their friendship. She wanted to live up to his example. He was a writer, capital W. She was no slouch. They were in Florence together, renting rooms in the same house for months at a time. And they were in Switzerland at the same time and in England at the same time for years. They wrote letters to one another every single day or close to it. James was incredibly educated and erudite. She had been well-educated, too, back in Cleveland at first in a seminary and then at a boarding school in New York City. And the two were extremely close. It's tempting to pit them against one another. She wasn't just a popular writer, as comfortable with her status as John Grisham. She was artistically ambitious as well. And James wrote a review of her work called Miss Wilson that was full of praise and affection and respect for their friendship, but also kind of undermined her work, too. And then he revised the essay and made it even sharper. Wilson was not exactly thick-skinned when it came to reviews. The critics, she once wrote in a letter, seemed to hold my very life in their hands. When she got bad reviews, she couldn't sleep, and the critics seemed to be particularly agitated that she was a woman. Not all critics, but some. Here's a man called John Richard Dennett, who was writing in The Nation, who says that Wilson's story... Peter the Parson was, quote, noticeable for the raw coarseness of its assault on the feelings and the unsteady, unskillful hand with which some commonplace figures are drawn, end quote. This is a problem of women writers in general, he goes on to claim, heart-wrenching female dealers in false feeling, was his phrase, complaining at how numerous they are. Wilson's tale is, quote, wildly improbable, destitute of the truth of fact or the truth of fiction, end quote. There's no restraint, he said. There's no reserve. There's little good sense. Instead, we get, quote, the display of the throbbing feelings of the characters, end quote. He called them indecent. That was John Richard Dennett. I'm reminded here of Christopher Hitchens when he claimed in his famous essay that women are not funny. It was pretty easy to expose his personal hang-up that he found women not funny. It was not about the women. It was about him. That he found it hard to bring himself to acknowledge it when a woman was funny. And one suspects that in this review, it was not about Wilson and the other women writers and their stories. It was about the critic and the approach he took when he sat down to read a story that he knew was written by a woman. William Dean Howells, a famous critic himself, reviewed the same story by Wilson and praised it for its dramatic skill and force. It argues a greater richness in our fictitious literature. He said, it, quote, has a high truth to human nature never once weakened by any vagueness of the moral ideal in the author, end quote. Indisputably original, said another critic of Wilson, a new sensation. And they compared Wilson with Henry James, positive genius full of power, and better than James, quote, in the quality of freshness, in the use of unhackneyed scenery and incident, end quote. Wow. Enter Henry James, a friend of Ms. Wilson's in Europe. He, of course, had been reading these reviews. He was aware of this debate. Is she full of freshness, a true original, and so on? Is she even superior to him in the quality of that freshness and the use of unhackneyed scenery and incident? Or is there something limiting about her? As John, what was his name, Richard Henry, John, John Richard Dennett, 
There's something limiting about her, and is that connected to being a, quote, woman writer, end quote? It was on both their minds then, both on Wilson's and on James's, and a clash or at least an encounter with these as the artistic stakes was inevitable. Ms. Wilson, before they even met, had written three stories about a young up-and-coming author trying to meet an author of renown or genius. It was on her mind. She called on James in London, only to find he was not there. He was in France. She then wrote Miss Grief and headed to the continent herself. Miss Grief is about one such author trying to meet another. James had the upper hand in their relationship, and he was standoffish at first. I see no one else of importance, he complained to his sister Alice. I have to call, for instance, on Constance Fenimore Wilson, who has been pursuing me throughout Europe, end quote. But that's the thing about the upper hand. You aware of that phrase? It's believed to come from the old baseball trick of Tossing the bat in the air and catching it, your opponent puts his hand on yours, over yours, headed toward the end of the handle. You put your next hand over his and so on until you work your way up the bat. And the last hand on the bat, whoever gets the highest on the handle, bats first. The upper hand isn't a permanent thing. In other words, the game has yet to be played. So James had the upper hand but the game was still being played, and Wilson was anxious about it. She doubted herself, she doubted her abilities, and James's imperiousness no doubt didn't help. Her stories about meeting these famous people were full of anxiety and judgment and rejection. Authors who were scorned were miserable about it in her works. They suffered. And yet Wilson was at the peak of her powers. She was writing novels and a novella, and selling dozens of short stories. She wrote poetry and a children's novel, travel sketches. Her books and articles sold well and were well-received by critics. And then in Europe, she and James became friends, close friends. And then he wrote his review of her work, Miss Wilson. We'll have more on that soon. Was it the review that turned things for her? Did it push her over the edge send her into a spiral that wound, with, wound up with her falling out the window in Venice or jumping out the window? Did it contribute? We can't know, of course. We do know as the years went on, she grew more and more depressed. And this wasn't just James's imagination, and it wasn't just an act that she put on for him. She wrote about this to others. But it wasn't just a character flaw or some womanly disposition either. She wrestled with depression the way people with depression wrestle with it. And she had a lot of sorrow in her past to deal with, too. Death had been a part of her life since the beginning. Three of her sisters died from scarlet fever within a month of her birth. When she was a girl, her mother lost another daughter. Constance's sister lost her in infancy, and then two older daughters who died shortly after their marriages. Imagine being close to a mother, being a mother's daughter, when that mother has lost six other daughters from the time you were born until the time you became an adult yourself. One can imagine how close you might become to that mother, who then lost her husband, and who then died herself. Constance saw all of this happen she saw her mother's sadness and agonized over her death. During the Civil War, she worked in a hospital, which was another round of agony. In 1890, she wrote a letter to Henry Mills Alden, the editor of Harper's, that said, quote, Did you ever see a small insect trying to climb a wall and always, sooner or later, falling to the floor, only to begin again? That is I. If the cruelties do not happen to me personally, though many of them have happened and continue to do so, they happen to someone within my sight. And then down I go again mentally, overwhelmed by the view of so much dreadful and helpless and often innocent or comparatively innocent suffering. I can't get over it. End quote. She traveled through Europe, 
devising her plan to see Europe slowly and in pieces, Florence and Greece and France and Egypt and England, months at a time in a single place. It sounds grand. It sounds like it would lift your spirits. But she was in decline. She began to grow deaf at an early age, which was a problem that ran in her family. Depression was another problem that afflicted her family. Her father had suffered from it. And then, on top of everything, when she was in her early 50s, she caught the flu in Venice, and finally she fell from a second-floor window and was killed. It was not clear whether this was on purpose or an accident. Her gondolier, Angelo, found her and carried her indoors. She was 53. Like James, she had never married. James at the time was 51. He arrived on the scene in Venice to help Constance's sister in the aftermath. Wilson was buried in the Protestant cemetery in Rome, where Keats and Shelley are. James sorted through her belongings and, scholars suspect, burned many of her letters. He insisted that she killed herself, that she was depressed, that this had been no accident. She was mad, he claimed, insane. And it was too bad that she was. It was sad, and she had been hard to deal with. And then there were the dresses we started with at the beginning. Did that happen? The story is often told as if it did. We don't know for sure. But I've given you the outline of an easy-to-see pattern. James, the celebrated male writer, diminishing the work of the female writer, especially in this essay, Miss Wilson, which we'll get to after the break. But that's the pattern. The male writer diminishing the work of the female writer. For decades, a lot of decades, she becomes forgotten. A footnote in James's history. But those dresses are unsinkable. We're going to salvage this story and give it a slightly different spin. And we're going to talk about her reputation as a writer, too. We'll do that after we do this. Okay, so we're going to tackle two misconceptions here. First of all, I want to clear up the misconception about Wilson's writing. We're really focused on James now. He was more subtle than the critic we heard earlier, Dennett, who said that she was one of those female dealers in false feeling. He painted her as someone who tugged at the heartstrings, who wallowed in sentiment, although listeners might say, hey, who was more sentimental than Charles Dickens? So why is that such a female trait? Anyway, men can make choices, and women can as well. But set that aside. As I mentioned, it says more about the critic than the work, and who cares what Dennett thinks? Who's he? Other than as a glimpse at what some gadflies were saying at the time. James is the real prize here for those of us hunting literary big game. When James weighs in, we listen, just as we know that he would be impossible to ignore for Constance Fenimore Wilson as well. When you say that the friendship takes you to the sky and lets you be the Constance you've always wanted to be, and when your being is well-defined by your work, your writing, and your art, well, that's not a piece that one would easily ignore, is it? So here's what James, in his essay, Miss Wilson, what a title, by the way, Miss Wilson. Why not just come out and say it? The spinster Wilson, not... Constance Fenimore Wilson, or I don't know what else he might have said. Could have titled it something else. Good. The good news is we now at least have Ms. to use. Ms. Wilson would have been better. Miss Wilson. Here's what he gets right, though. She, he says, quote, She is interested in general in secret histories, in the inner life of the weak, the superfluous, the disappointed, the bereaved, the unmarried. She believes in personal renunciation, in its frequency as well as its beauty. End quote. That's pretty close to Wilson and what she's all about. Those are her characters. That is her set of concerns. 
It's clear that James is a thorough and an astute reader of Constance Fenimore Wilson. And guess what? Personal renunciation is a close-to-the-bone topic for Henry James as well. Didn't he renounce most pleasures? He never married. He never had kids. He may have been in the closet. Travels. He traveled a lot, but he never really journeyed in my sense. He devotes himself to the adventures of the mind and the pen. He is fiction's monk. James goes on, however, in Miss Wilson, to suggest that Constance had a natural timidity, an inability to create strong feelings or strong characters, not seeing, of course, that there's strength in choosing to write about renunciation. Renunciation is a great topic, and he had to know that. He had to know that because he wrote about it himself. So when I say he didn't see that, he failed to see it, failed to notice it, it might be more fair, more accurate to say that he didn't acknowledge it. I think he did see it, that there's strength in writing about renunciation. It was a topic he chose often. And in fact, this is the problem for James. This is hard to defend. In his essay, Miss Wilson, he turned those traits that he had noticed in her into a condemnation of her as a writer that he also tied back into her gender, like Dennett, like that strain of thought. It was her, quote, conservative feeling, end quote, that women had been by their very nature already too much exposed. That's a quote, too. She had a conservative feeling that women had been by their very nature already too much exposed. He said, it would never occur to her to lend her voice to a plea. Let me just interrupt myself there. To use the phrase, it would never occur to her, is a pretty dastardly phrase to use when you're talking about an artist, someone who is still living, and a friend to whom you write letters every day, and who you secretly arrange to live near only your fear of scandal and reputation makes you do all this in secret. Several times, they lived in the same building under the same roof, not in the same rooms, but in the same building. It would never occur to her to lend her voice to a plea for further exposure, for a revolution which should place her sex in the thick of the struggle for power, end quote. What is that, Henry James? It suggests that she's weak. She's womanly and she's weak. She's not just, she's not just weak. She's blind. It would never occur to her to take that she thinks women are already too exposed. Don't expose them more. Don't have them be stronger. It would not occur to her to have a woman character strong and forceful and make tough choices and be at the center of things, the thick of it, as they should. As they sh- If they want to be equals, that's what they're going to need to do. That's what James is saying. He's saying instead we have her avoiding Avoiding the difficult, the confrontational, the meat and potatoes of literature is left to the men. Evoking a local tone is more her thing, which is more of a side dish. It's not meat and potatoes. Later, he revised the essay and got even sharper. He said that Wilson's fiction was, quote, characteristic of the feminine as opposed to the masculine hand, end quote. Oh, James, but guess what? Guess what? Here's where he was wrong. And he had to know he was wrong. Here's where he was wrong. Wilson, her works had plenty of feisty characters, both men and women. She had plenty of colorful people making strong choices, doing ardent things. But her fiction focused on the characters who were stuck, 
who couldn't get started, who couldn't bring themselves to act, for whom self-abnegation was not just a choice, but an inherent quality. Or maybe it's more accurate to say, not just an inherent quality, but something of a choice. People swirl around these inert non-actors, trying to pull them forward, trying to pull them up, but they stubbornly remain in place, stuck. Depressed? Maybe. They act depressed, but their stubbornness is what compels Wilson. And why not? It was a stubbornness that she, the artist, knew well. I can't judge these much-revered statues around me, she said when she was in Italy. I am so unacquainted with the human form. Think about that from a woman who is chaste, who's lived a chaste life. I see these statues. I know I'm missing out. Not ju- This isn't a quote. This is a paraphrase. I know I'm missing out, not just on the appreciation of the statues, but an appreciation of sex, of life, of the body. One of the great pleasures that everyone around me has available to them. She was sad. Her personality suffused with gloom. James knew it. He felt guilty about it. He didn't do enough for her, and maybe nobody could. But this essay didn't help, although that's somewhat speculative on my part. We know that even after it came out, they were still in touch. Which leads me to the second misconception I want to address. There's a tendency to view the James Wilson friendship as one where... James is on the mountaintop, but he was envious of her success. He was the king of the hill, but he was envious of her success. He saw her personal weakness as for what it was, that she was an anxious person full of misery and doubt, and then he exploited that feeling to keep her down because he was cruel and indifferent, and that made him feel better about himself. In this version, he's the king of the hill, but she's, and he's got his his boot on her forehead as she's climbing, he knocks her down. She's a martyr there to be reclaimed by critics who try very hard to elevate her work. She was the misunderstood genius. She's forgotten now because James painted her as a crazy woman to the world, minimized her art while she was alive, and when she was dead, tried to sink her reputation completely, told everyone that she had been mad, not sane. Is there truth to this? Maybe some. But we go too far if we turn him into a kind of demonic Svengali. Her art was what it was, but she was what she was too. Maybe he hurt her, but the pain was there long before he showed up. In fact, it's what makes her work as good as it is. She's not a happy lady bouncing along until this demon Henry James puts her through his psychological torture regime and leaves her as a a broken shell. She was always deep and complex all the time, and so is James. He wasn't just a a brain writing literature like someone who writes crossword puzzles for a living, cranking out insights and observations the way someone might dream up clues for five down and three across. He had his own demons, his own inner world that he was tapping. We learn about both of them from this interaction they had with one another, or maybe we don't learn about them, but we learn about their art. They had a strange chemistry, those chemicals that erased the layers of their personality like acid etching its way through grime and leaving behind the shiny metal core. Naked at last, nakedly revealed, their souls exposed. We're going to see this twice in coming episodes. First, we're going to see hers with Miss Grief, and then we'll see his with the Beast in the Jungle. And in both cases, the bewitching connection that the two of them had with one another will be part of our discussion. Her relationship with James will be part of our look at her work, and his relationship with her will be part of our look at his. Let's turn now, let's turn back to the final haunting image. The great writer, the man who could see into the hearts of everyone else and was sharp enough to see into his own heart as well, even if he didn't always know exactly what to do with that knowledge other than to cover it up. This man 
in a gondola on a Venetian canal trying to sink dresses of his former friend and soulmate. But those dresses balloon up with angry and defiant and reproachful buoyancy. I would call them willful, but they're more, more ghostly than that in this image. There's no will in the dresses, and yet they're dresses that won't stay drowned. Critics of James like this image. She cannot be erased, Henry James. You tried. You couldn't do it. You burned her letters, but you couldn't erase all of her works. We can read her for ourselves and reclaim her, promote her. You're equal. But there's another view. Other than just one of a man who jealously tried to keep a woman out of club literature, there's one of a man who's immersed in nostalgia and friendship and love, someone who's trying to take care of a task. Her dresses needed to go somewhere. Maybe there was some reason why the lagoon was the right place. Maybe he couldn't bear to donate them and to think of someone else wearing them. Maybe he couldn't bear to burn them. Maybe he thought the water burial was appropriate for them. There's a tendency to say or to suggest that she died by accident and that James, in insisting it was suicide, was trying to treat her as the mad woman in the attic. Talk about how hard it was to be her friend. Maybe so. But she was depressed. Not just with him, but with others as well. Others noticed it too. And it runs all through her writing. Life is hard. It was hard for her. It was full of hardships. She had moments of excitement and pleasure, but also moments of sorrow and grief. Another friend said of her that she had not as much happiness as a convict in her life. What a statement. That <laughs> she had less happiness in her life than a convict. Once she wrote to James, quote, Death is not terrible to me. It is only a release. And if at any time you should hear that I had died, always be sure that I was quite willing and even glad to go. I don't think this is a morbid feeling because it is accompanied by a very strong belief that while we are here, we should do our very best and be as courageous and work as hard as we possibly can. End quote. When she died, when she fell from that window, she had been writing a novel. In it, a character has climbed a window ledge in the delirium of illness. He's about to die, but he's saved, rescued by someone else, rescued at the last moment. That was in an uncompleted draft of a novel that Constance Fenimore Wilson was working on. And that might be the last image I have, the, or the last view of this image we've, we started with. The one with James in the water with the dresses. He's pushing them down, they reemerge. And in the description of Lyndall Gordon, the dresses are triumphant, their silence a reproach. James is getting what he deserves, and he's left to look on with seeming horror as he realizes what he's done that he's exposed now that there's a kind of curse that's gone into effect, he will be haunted. I imagine something a little different. There's a curse, but it's not a writer who destroyed the reputation of another writer. It's a man who had a friend he didn't do right by. She was incurably sad. He did a little, but not enough. Maybe nobody could have, but he was in the best position to try, and it didn't work. There was no rescue for her. The rescue came in her work, but not her life. And the man left to deal with the dresses had to absorb what that meant. What it had meant for her, which was awful enough, and what it now meant for him, which may have been even worse. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to my emailer, Luca, and to Mr. Henry James, and above all, Ms. Constance Fenimore-Wilson. Check out her works, people. I know what you're saying. Hey, you didn't read much, Jack. 
We still don't know what her work was like. Well, that's because we're just getting started. We're going to read her work next episode, people. Miss Grief will be all yours. And I will be all yours as well. That's what I'm here for. When you go up on that ledge, not literally, of course. My goodness, I'm not Santa Claus able to fly around the world and enter a million houses in a night. But if you rise up to that ledge, metaphorically, and you need a friend, someone who wants to help, I'm here. The podcast is here, and literature is here, and so am I. My heart bursts for all of you, my friends. And I'll keep your letters intact. I won't burn them. And I'll do with your dresses whatever you want me to do. That's just the kind of guy I am. If you want them donated, that's fine. I'll haul them off to Goodwill. If you want them drowned, I'll try to do that too. Head out to the canal. Row me out to the canal, my friend. My good gondolier friend. I need to drown some dresses. My heart will be aching. I got off on the wrong track. The point is I'm here to rescue We won't get that far. You're not going to fall. Your dresses will still be yours to wear. And don't you look so pretty in that smart little black number. And don't I look like Austin Powers, as an emailer suggested recently. That's his mental image of me. My goodness, I sit here imagining myself as James Bond and wind up coming across as Austin Powers. Kind of like in the 1990s when my student said I sounded like Ray Fines, and my colleague overheard and said, oh, she said, you sound like, as if my student had meant that as an insult. Yes, I suppose I'm not a movie star like our old friend Meg Tilly, but I clean up well, people. I do my best. (laughs) I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.